God, we praise you and uh, Lord, we thank you for the blessing of coming together and gathering as a church family. God, we're here today because we love you, because uh, we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and because, Lord, we want to know you more deeply, more intimately. We pray, God, that as we look at your word, we, we pray for a divine experience to take place where your spirit takes your word and impresses it into our hearts today. God, we don't just want to hear from a man. We don't just want to hear from me and, and my opinions, but we want to hear from you. So God, would you, by your spirit, illuminate our hearts, illuminate our minds so that we can walk out of here changed, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever done something wrong and you knew that it was wrong and yet were stunned by someone else's response to your wrongdoing? I'm sure you've been there before. I'm sure you have lots of examples of that in your own life. I know for me, uh, when I was in elementary school, I was at a, uh, a high school basketball game. My dad was one of the assistant uh, coaches and so went to a lot of basketball games growing up. But in this particular game, uh, I was hanging out with uh, some of my friends. And during the game, we were kind of hanging out outside of the restrooms and there was a fire alarm that was on the wall near us. And growing up, I was um, very interested in fire alarms. I don't know why, uh, maybe because I was told never to pull it or something crazy might happen. And so my curiosity was piqued with that. But boys being boys, during uh, that game, uh, we were all kind of daring each other of who's going to pull the fire alarm. And in that particular game, or during that particular game, as I was hanging out with my friends, they dared me, the assistant basketball coach's son, to pull the fire alarm, and I did. The alarm went off, and chaos just broke out. The game was suspended. Everybody was traveling outside. It's in the winter, so we're all freezing. And I knew I was done. Like, I, I knew there were too many witnesses. Like, there's no way I can wiggle out of this one. And then I, I see my dad from afar. And my dad is, you know, 6'2", 6'3", kind of a big dude, uh, very intimidating. And, and he makes eye contact with me. And I'm thinking, oh, man, he knows that I pulled this fire alarm. Somehow he found out about that. And he's coming towards me. And he did know that I pulled it. And he came up to me, and I was stunned at his response to what I did. I thought I was going to get yelled at. I thought he was just going to lay into me. But he just very lovingly, very gently put his arm around me and said, are you okay? And why did you pull the fire alarm? Now, I had uh, serious consequences after, uh, after this conversation, but his, his immediate reaction, his immediate response to my foolish action, which I knew made him look bad, absolutely stunned me. Now, when we come to 1 Corinthians here, I think that's exactly how the Corinthians must have felt as they open up this letter from their father in the faith, the Apostle Paul, and they start to read these opening lines. Remember, this is a church that was a beautiful mess. It had sin, it had dysfunction, there was division, immorality all over the place. And yet, instead of these opening lines being filled with strong rebuke, what they read here are words that are filled with encouragement, filled with thanksgiving, and filled with love towards the Corinthians. Verse 4, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Really, Paul? 
I mean, if you were Paul, if I were Paul, is this the way that we would start off this letter? Knowing what we know about Corinthians, remember last week, we kind of gave a preview that there are 15 different problems, very complicated problems that the apostle Paul is going to address. And so how in the world can Paul uh, honestly and with integrity begin a letter in the midst of all the dysfunction with thanksgiving and with encouragement. Well, I think it's because the Apostle Paul viewed his church not as problems to be solved, but as people to love and to shepherd. I think that's Paul's kind of perspective on the church that he's leading and, and that he planted. And the reason why Paul had that type of mindset towards the church here is because the Apostle Paul was obsessed with grace. He's obsessed with the grace found in Jesus Christ. In fact, in these first nine verses, Paul refers to Jesus 11 different times. This is the reason why Paul can begin with thanksgiving, with encouragement, because he's highlighting not what the Corinthians are doing or not doing, but he's highlighting all the things that Jesus, by his grace, has already done for the Corinthians. Notice in verse 2, Paul says that they have been sanctified in Christ. Verse 2b, that they are called to be saints because of the name of Christ. Verse 3, the grace and peace that they experience is from Christ. Verse 4, this grace given to them is in Christ. Their speech and knowledge were enriched in Christ. Verse 5, verse 6, the testimony that was confirmed in them was that of Christ. Verse seven, the future hope is rooted in the future full revelation of Christ. In verse eight, it's in Christ that God will sustain them to the end, make them blameless on the day of Christ. And then verse nine, they're called to enjoy this fellowship with Christ. Look, Jesus is everywhere. Now, why? Well, why does Paul begin this letter in this way? It's because the greatest remedy to sinful and selfish living begins with being enthralled with the person of Jesus Christ. That the way to change, the way to kind of work on the problems and the issues that are going on in our lives and here in Corinth, it's not, here are three solutions to getting over division in your church. Right? That's not the way that Paul begins this. He doesn't say, hey, here are four ways to maximize accountability in order to get over sexual immorality. Or, hey, here are three things to keep in mind when you're debating whether or not to sacrifice food to idols. Paul doesn't begin that way because the way that we grow through the issues in our lives first starts with our hearts being captivated by Christ. Robert McChaney in the 1800s uh, said this, he said that for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ, live near to Jesus, and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hidden in the deep recesses of the ocean caves? Likewise, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again, and you will never come to the bottom of these depths. 
Look, that is exactly Paul's aim here in these first nine verses. Paul is teaching the Corinthians and he's teaching us today how to dive and dive again into the depths of God's grace where there are unfathomable riches. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to dive into the, the nature of God's grace in these verses by highlighting three aspects of grace that really shape this entire letter moving forward. All right, so three aspects of grace. Here's the first one. Paul wants us to notice the generosity of God's grace. If you look at these verses, one of the things that should stick out to you is the passive nature of these verses in which all that the Corinthians have, they have because something has been done to them or for them, or it's been given to them. Just notice the the verbs here in these verses. Verse four, was given. Verse five, were enriched. Verse six, was confirmed. Verse nine, were called. And verse eight, the Corinthians are the object of the sustaining that will be done by Jesus. See, See, these verses are all about something that God has done for the Corinthians out of his generous, limitless, boundless, infinite grace. And that's really what grace is. Grace is the opposite of earning. Grace is a free gift to those who are undeserving of it. And Paul is beginning here in verse four. He begins by giving thanks to God for this grace that God has lavished upon the Corinthians. Now, Paul has two things in mind here when he's talking about grace. The first thing that he has in mind, excuse me, that he has in mind is the grace that God has demonstrated in the outpouring of God's mercy and forgiveness towards the sinful people in Corinth. Okay, he's thankful for the gospel. But secondly, what Paul has in mind here are the spiritual gifts that God has generously given to the Corinthians. These two ideas are very closely associated all throughout this letter. In fact, in the original Greek uh, language, the word for grace is charis. The word for a gift or spiritual gift is charisma. Okay, they're very closely associated. And throughout this letter, they're oftentimes linked together because one of the ways that God demonstrates his grace towards his people is through giving his people spiritual gifts. Even in verse five, Paul connects this idea. He gives thanks for this grace that was given, that in every way you were enriched in him. How? In all speech and in all knowledge. Okay, speech and knowledge here are referring to spiritual gifts. The speech here is referring to the spiritual gifts involving speaking like prophecy or speaking in tongues. The knowledge here are referring to the knowledge gifts like wisdom and discernment and spiritual insight. Now we're going to get to spiritual gifts more in chapters 12 through 14. But what you need to know this morning is that the the church here in Corinth had these gifts all over the place, that in every way they've been enriched by them. And I think that the reason why Paul's thanksgiving here is so surprising and so stunning is because it's these gifts, these spiritual gifts is what was causing all of the problems throughout the church. The spiritual gifts is what was causing some of the divisions and some of the disagreements. 
the spiritual gifts that were causing the, the competitive comparisons that were going on in this church. It's the spiritual gifts that were creating the illusion of self-sufficiency among the Corinthians. It was these gifts that caused the, the type of knowledge that puffs up and doesn't build up. But notice what Paul does here. He doesn't begin kind of rebuking them for these gifts. He begins by giving thanks for these gifts. And in so doing, he's showing the Corinthians and he's showing us this morning that the point of these gifts is not about you and it's not about how great you are, but it's about the giver and his generosity. See, part of the problem in Corinth is that they were unhinging the spiritual gifts from the giver. And as a result, it was leading them to, to abusing and misusing the spiritual gifts. So part of the solution that Paul lays out for us, he's saying, hey, let's start with the giver. Let's give him thanks. Let's give him praise. Let's give him worship because these gifts come from him and allow that to shape our perspective about how we need to understand spiritual gifts. Verse five, he says, in every way you have been enriched. Look, notice the extravagant generosity of God, that God is a kind compassionate, selfless giver who delights in giving good things to his children. James 1, 17 says that every good and perfect gift comes from above, that everything that we have has been given to us by God out of his generosity. Romans 8, 32 says that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Look, I think the reason why this is so important is because even though God will only give us what, is, uh, what we need, what, what, what's best for us, we oftentimes need to be reminded that the well of God's grace is bottomless, that God has an infinite supply of goodness and grace that he wants to lavish upon his children. But the issue here is not that God is stingy, it's not that God is tight-fisted with his grace, but the issue more often than not is that we fail to recognize God's generosity and to give him thanks and praise for all that he has given us. Look, oftentimes, and sometimes we don't even know that we're doing this, we're coming to God, especially in our prayer lives, and we're saying, God, give me more, more, more. And yet we don't even realize that our hands are full of his blessings already, that God has given things to us and he's been generous to us in ways that, that we're not even identifying in our own lives. Last weekend, I had uh, some family in from Ohio, my, my brother's side of the family, and he has two kids. And, and uh, so I've got a niece and a nephew on that side. And my niece is so cute. She's absolutely adorable, just over a year old. And she wasn't uh, too chatty uh, that day. She was, you know, just kind of hanging out. But there was one word that she kept saying over and over and over again. And it was the word more. She'd come up to me and I had the donuts, right? Like that's my, that was my role that day. And her face is covered in like donuts. She's got kind of remains of donuts in her hands. And she comes up to me and she says, more, more? more, kind of like a cute little bird. I've got all these donuts here. And, and I was kind of thinking about that image. And I was like, man, like that is, that is how so many of us approach God, where so many of us just come to him and, and we're filled with the blessings of God already. And yet we're still coming to him saying more, 
more, more, not really realizing all that God has already given us. Now, if you're young in the faith, if you're a toddler in the faith, that's an appropriate posture to have with God because you're recognizing that God can provide for you. But if you're not maturing past that in moving towards recognizing the generosity of God and actually giving him praise for it, there's a danger that starts to settle into your heart, that you start to become entitled. You start to become self-absorbed. You, you start to, to almost become this type of person that, that demands things from God. Like, I think that there's a huge difference between coming to God with a humble expectancy and becoming a spoiled, entitled child of God. I think we need to be careful of that because this is what was happening at the church of Corinth. They have all these gifts from God, and yet they fail to give proper praise and recognition to the source of these gifts, leading to misusing the gifts. And I think we need to heed this warning. In fact, if you could think through 2020 so far, if you could think about the ways that you have been interacting with the Lord and this year has been challenging. There's been so many things that have happened that we just didn't expect that have, been, uh, that have been hard. And yet when you think about the way that you've been interacting with God, particularly in your prayer life, what, what has been characterizing those interactions with him? Has it been thanksgiving? Has it been praise? Has it been worship? Or have your interactions with the Lord been more about complaining or being entitled or wanting more, more, and more? I think that we need to be a people who are grateful children who bask in the generosity of God's boundless grace. I think this is a good challenge, even as Thanksgiving is around the corner. So this is the first way that we dive into the ocean of God's grace, is that we understand the generosity of God and his grace. But secondly here in verses 6 through 8, another way that we can grow in understanding God's grace is understanding how it sustains us how it sustains us. In verse six, Paul says that the testimony or the message about Christ referring to the gospel has been confirmed among you. And Paul says that this has been confirmed among the Corinthians because of these spiritual gifts that were evident in this church. Now don't move too quickly past this. This is pretty significant. This is kind of a source of encouragement that Paul is giving the people in Corinth Because even though there's dysfunction, there's sin, there's immorality, there are divisions, there's still evidence that they have received the gospel because of these gifts. Now notice what he says in verse seven. He says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Okay, so again, the generosity of God has led God to giving them everything that they need, but notice for what reason. Verse seven, he says, so you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the first mention of many of the return of Christ in this letter. Paul is kind of dipping his toes into the the pool of eschatology or the study of the end times, which is a major theme throughout this letter. And here, Paul begins to provide a proper perspective on the end times by highlighting this already but not yet reality by explaining spiritual gifts 
within an eschatological framework. Okay, let me unpack what I mean there because that was a mouthful right there in that sentence. If you notice what Paul is doing here, Paul is saying that God has given you spiritual gifts for the purpose of sustaining you until the end when Jesus Christ has been fully revealed to you, when he returns. Now that is significant because Paul is correcting within the Corinthians the fact that they thought that Jesus had fully come back, that the kingdom of God had been fully set up. So Paul is saying that you already know Jesus, but you don't know him fully yet. He will be fully revealed in the future. The end has not yet come, which means you are in need of being sustained until the end. And that's the purpose of these spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts were not given to God's people as evidence that his kingdom has been fully um, inaugurated, but the gifts have been given as part of the means that God uses to sustain his people to the end. Now, don't miss this, okay? This is part of the way that having a proper eschatology impacts how we live in the present in the way that it shapes our desires. If you look at verse seven, I want you to underline the phrase, as you wait. The phrase, as you wait, I think Paul is insisting here that we have not yet received what we ultimately long for. Uh, namely the full revelation of Jesus Christ, where we will see him face to face and his return, where he will put an end, he will triumph over the powers of evil and death. And so the way that impacts us right now in the present is that we are in a time of waiting. It is a confident waiting. It is a, an expectant waiting, but it is waiting nonetheless. And this eschatological waiting is a posture of our hearts that must shape our desires because it's a waiting, knowing and trusting that there's something better that is coming. Now, the problem here, the reason why many of us, our eschatology doesn't impact our presence is because we don't, we don't wait very well. Like the thought of Jesus returning and directing and funneling our desires towards that great truth is not something that we think about enough. And so typically we have a void in our hearts and that desire of Jesus to see him face to face is not in our hearts. And so oftentimes we look to the things of this world to satiate and to fill that void. And that was part of the problem here in Corinth. For the Corinthians, they had an over-realized eschatology, meaning the kingdom of God has fully come. Therefore, they weren't waiting. They weren't longing for Jesus in the way that they ought. Our problem is typically the opposite. It's not over-realized. It's under-realized eschatology where we don't think about the return of Christ enough and allowing that to shape what we are to desire. See, Paul is very clearly saying that there is more coming, that you should be desiring as you wait to seeing Jesus face to face. And these gifts are given to you as a foretaste of the future reality. Now, this is exactly 
why we need God's sustaining grace, because to wait and to long for Jesus is hard. This is the crux of the Christian life, if you will. When you think about how we go through our lives and and how we are to funnel and direct our desires, we need to be a lot more intentional. We need to train the desires of our hearts and what we are feasting on because our default, our heart's default is to be consumed with the present. It's to be consumed with this life right now or this particular season. And oftentimes we don't see far out enough knowing that we will be with Jesus forever and ever. So we get consumed with with this world thinking maybe this world is all that there is and we wanna build our kingdom the best that we know how. And then on top of that, I don't know about you, but this is what I experience on a daily basis is that uh, we have kind of the, the endless amount of options in this world that are screaming at us, try me, experience me, run after me, and then you'll be satisfied and then you'll be fulfilled, right? That, that's on a daily basis, just constantly being bombarded with all of these other options to funnel my desires toward. And we need to train our hearts to consume the grace of God in order to sustain us. Okay, now I know that was a lot there. I know that eschatology is not a, um, is not a doctrine that we think a lot about. And we'll kind of unpack that as we move through this book. But what I wanna drill down into a little bit longer here is how does God sustain us by his grace? Okay, if this, is, if this is how God kind of keeps us until the end, what does that look like practically? Okay, let me give you three ways that God's grace sustains us. Number one, this is just by way of application. God's grace sustains us through forgiving us of our sin, through the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. I love Ephesians 1, 7. It says that in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Okay, so it is God's grace that is the fulfillment of God's plan to remedy the problem of sin through the death of Jesus Christ. And look, this is grace because none of us deserve that. None of us deserve God taking our sin-infested place on the cross and putting an end to it. None of us deserve that. None of us have earned that. And, and it's by the, the, the blood of Jesus on the cross where he took our penalty, he took our place where whoever believes in Jesus can experience this kind of forgiveness. And it's by God's grace where he takes us who are wretched, who are sinful, who are unclean, and he cleanses us through the blood and the righteousness of Jesus. I love grace because you can't outsin God's grace. It's impossible that God's grace is bottomless. Look, I think that this helps sustain us because in this life, you will sin. We, we are all in process And for us who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, we need to know what to do with that sin, even after that that we're saved. And I think understanding God's grace here helps shape the fact that we have a loving father who even after we sin, holds out his loving arms, who is ready and willing and more than able to forgive us because of his grace. All right, this picture here kind of reminds me of Luke chapter 15, 
and the prodigal son, or what's been uh, most known as the prodigal son, even though the, the key character there is the loving father. In Luke 15, you've got the the prodigal son who takes his father's inheritance. He goes and spends it all. He engages in sinful living. He's filled with guilt, filled with shame. And it occurs to him that he can actually come back to his father and try to earn his sonship back. And yet Luke 15 verse 20 says that the father who saw his son, who was still a far out distance out there, says that the father was filled with compassion and he ran towards his son and he, he embraced him and he welcomed him home. Like that is a picture of grace. That is a picture of what we have in God because of Jesus that even after we sin, we have a loving father who is filled with compassion, who still sees us from a far off distance, runs out towards us and embraces us with his arms of grace. And it's all because of Christ and that sustains us in this life. But secondly here, another way that grace sustains us is that it, it strengthens weak hearts, strengthens weak hearts. Grace not only gets us into heaven, but grace prepares us for heaven. 2 Timothy 2.1, Paul says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Look, when, when we feel weak and inadequate, which is probably a daily experience if you're like me, the thing that we need in those moments is not a, a list of commands for us to pursue in our depleted strength. But what we need is to be reassured that there is a strong God who is with us, who is for us, and who is powerfully at work within us. See, sometimes we look at weakness as something to avoid. And yet if dependency is the goal, then weakness is always an advantage. That Paul even says that in our weakness, God's power is made perfect. And yet when we are weak, when we are feeling kind of inadequate, I think it's in those moments we need to be on guard because we're vulnerable to believing two different kinds of lies. We're vulnerable to believing that you're all alone. And secondly, that you lack the spiritual resources needed in order to be faithful to God. And yet because of grace, because we've been forgiven by God, he has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit and because the spirit lives within us, we have his presence and we have his power in our lives, which means you're never alone. And secondly, you have everything that you need to live a godly life. And so God's grace strengthens us and sustains us through the gift of the Holy Spirit with his presence and with his power. And then thirdly, another way that grace sustains us is that God equips us with real spiritual gifts. You can call these grace gifts, if you will. They're unique to each individual that God uses to sustain us. Love uh, Romans chapter 12 says that having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now we're gonna 
uh, unpack spiritual gifts later on in this book, but you need to know that if you're a follower of Jesus, you've not only been forgiven by God, you've not only been given the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives within you, but you have been given a real spiritual gift. This isn't theoretical. It's not hypothetical. It's not something that you're going to receive sometime out in the future, but you have been given a real spiritual gift right now. And you've been given that spiritual gift for two reasons. Number one, to edify and encourage the body of Christ that you're a part of, the believers around you. And secondly, this is God's mean. This is the means of God in order to help sustain you until the end, which means if you are sitting on your spiritual gift and not using it, or if you do not know your spiritual gift and you're not using it, you're not only robbing the church around you of edifying them and encouraging them, but you are also rejecting God's appointed means in sustaining you and helping you persevere until the end. And so understanding the gifts or the gift that God has given you is really important in order for his grace to sustain you until the end. And we'll talk about more of that throughout this letter. So God's grace, it's generous. God's grace sustains us. The third aspect of God's grace, though, and we'll close with this in verse nine, God's grace is faithful. It's faithful. Look, if you read verse nine, and it doesn't want to make you jump out of your seats, then, then I don't know what will. But if you read verse nine here, Paul says, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the Corinthians for a moment. And remember, understand, you're, you're a church in Corinth, right? You've got all kinds of sin, division, dysfunction, immorality, and yet you read these words from the Apostle Paul that God is faithful. How encouraging would that be to, to read those words and basically have it be said over you that God has not given up on you, that God will never give up on you. Look, how encouraging is this to, to read out loud for us as a church that God is faithful, that, that, that there's nothing that can stop the faithfulness of God. Look, I don't know what kind of season that you're in right now. I don't know what, what, what's on your plate in life or, or who needs to hear this today. But even when you cannot see it, God is faithful. That even when your circumstances want to convince you otherwise, you need to be reminded today that God is faithful. Even if your life, you look around and, and it's in a constant state of chaos filled with unknowns, be reminded today that God is faithful. Even when you think about this whole year and your expectations and your dreams and your desires and how all of that has been flipped upside down, be reminded that God is faithful. He's not giving up on you. Even when you're tired and you're worn out and you're depleted, God is faithful. Even when you are unfaithful, God is faithful. That God is always true. God is always reliable. God has a perfect track record of thousands and thousands and thousands of years of always keeping his promises. Oh, I love Philippians 1, 6 that says, he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Christ, will complete it, not might, 
but will complete it. And what that means is that God has an unstoppable purpose for your life in shaping you and in conforming you into the person of Jesus Christ. Like, don't miss this encouragement today that God is faithful even in this, this life of waiting for the return of Jesus. All of it is placed under the shield of God's faithfulness, which means follower of Jesus, like there's nothing that can touch you in this life. As it relates to the purposes of God for you, there's nothing from this world. There's nothing from Satan. Not even your poor choices can stop God from being faithful to his promises. Like God's faithful. It's not, he's faithful in giving you what you want. It's not in serving your agenda for your life or your family, but God is faithful and he promises to sustain you until the end guiltless in the day of Christ Jesus because you're hidden and you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ and you're called to enjoy the friendship and the fellowship of Jesus Christ and God will surely do it. Paul's point here is that God who is the generous giver of an endless amount of supply of grace, he undergirds our hope in this life and he will hold you fast. Like that is good news, especially in a world where it's constantly changing, instability all around us, our relationships change, our money changes, our feelings change, our bodies change, our ages change, everything changes. And, and we sometimes live in this illusion that we're in control, and yet the reality is, is that we're really not. And there's really no guarantee in this life except one thing, and that is that God is faithful, and he will sustain you until the end. And praise be to God for that. Let's pray together as a church. God, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, that we cannot exhaust your grace. God, I feel like we've just uh, kind of skimmed the, the surface today, just thinking about all that you are. God, we thank you that your grace is much more than just forgiving us, that we can enter into a relationship with you. But we thank you that your grace strengthens us. We thank you that your grace sustains us. God, I pray as we think about our own lives and our own shortcomings, our own temptations, the, our, our own trials that we are in right now, God, thank you for the reminder that you are faithful. God, thank you that we are not alone in this life, but that you are committed to growing us and to making us look more and more like Jesus. God, that's our desire. So use anything and everything to accomplish that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.